I went on a boat this week. I, I think I told uh, the Twitch chat this the day it happened because I streamed that evening. But I, I went on a boat this week with my boss. Originally, we were going to go just have lunch. My Me, myself. Why did I just say me, myself? Myself, my boss, and my brother. Because my brother knows my boss. My brother's moving to California this week away from the East Coast. It's very sad. But, uh, you know, his fiance got a job at Apple. So we can't pass that up. They can't pass that up together, obviously. Uh, and... We were originally just going to go out to lunch together, and then a couple days before, boss sees the weather's going to be nice, and he sends uh, us a text message. He makes a group chat. He's like, hey, it looks like it's going to be a pretty nice day. Why don't we go out on my boat? And I'm like, uh, sure, sounds sounds good, you know? You know, professional meeting on the boat for lunch. You know, he said he'd order sandwiches that I could pick up on the way, and then he's like, well, I have this tube. If you guys want to go tubing, you know, we can water tube and stuff. And I was like, yes, that sounds a lot of fun to, to tube and have my boss driving a boat as me and my brother are dragged around in the water. And that was going to be a, a good time. And I literally have here my show notes that we were going to just, I was freaking epic to do afterwards. And that I'd add something after it happens. And, and parentheses written on Monday. And then underlines, I say the notes of what happened afterwards. And there wasn't a tube. Apparently the tube just wasn't there for water tubing. But there were water skis. I'd never water skied before in my entire life. To, to make that very, very explicitly clear. Never water skied before. So I have no idea what I'm doing. And I go out on this thing. And I just, like, ate so much seawater. Like, I face planted or, or got, like, wiped out so many times. I literally think my, like, salt content in my body, like, went up 10% for the amount of, like, inhaled salt water from all the wipeouts. And they <laughs> were laughing. <laughs> it was a good time. And, yeah. Go go boating with your boss. That's all I'll say at the end of the day. It, it, it's definitely worth it. Everything said in the Theta Talk podcast is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast is financial advice, and please talk with a professional investment advisor, and do your own research before making any investment decisions. Welcome to Theta Talk, the podcast where you get premium for your time. I'm your host, Strat Becker. I know it's a cringe catch line, but it matches pretty well, and it goes with the target audience, and I'm going to be a master marketer alongside being a master investor. So at the end of the day, it works out. Uh, we're going to be talking about a couple things today. It's going to probably be a less topic breadth than usual, just because I've been busy a lot during the past week preparing a charity stream that I've been doing. Uh, for those that might follow me on Twitch as well as watching this podcast, they might know we're raising money for Crisis Text Line uh, over the week. And we did a stream last night, and we raised over $1,000 last night, which was crazy. And, and I, when I say last night, I mean Saturday night. And we're doing our main stream for this. It's going to be an eight-hour stream on Friday, September 3rd at 12 p.m. Eastern to 8 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to you know, watch that while it's happening, you're listening to this podcast, don't normally come to Twitch. It's going to be a Twitch at twitch.tv slash We're really doing our best to make a difference. If you want to stop by for that, feel free to do it. My internship is wrapping up this week. You know, most internships ended a week and a half ago or so, but I'm really working through um, to moving back to college to like 10. I think I'm probably going to put in 15 hours this week to try to finish my last company or something. But... It's kind of crazy. It's kind of the end. You know, I started it later than most people. I started in like mid June because I cold emailed this guy um, because my brother knew him, and I asked him to mentor me at first. I was like, you know, I'm gonna be busy this summer with my courses and stuff, but I still want to learn from you. 
and he gave me a, like a project to see what I'd do with it, and I did it. And then he offered me the intern frame over the summer, and it's been such such a great experience. And I'm honestly um, hoping it doesn't fully end when I move back to college. Uh, you know, obviously we're not to get situated there and stuff. But he said uh, there's a chance, like, or if I want to, I could probably work part time, like you know, less than obviously than I'm doing right now, but like during the college year, like work a bit. And I'm so excited for that opportunity. Like I've had such a great experience that I want to, you know, kind of reflect on a little bit with the whole internship because I really didn't expect it. I think honestly, especially for younger people, the number one thing you can do is cold, cold email the hell out of things. Send cold messages because maybe you get an internship at like some of the larger firms by applying and stuff. But so many of the times these places aren't going to hire from, you know, applying online on like handshake and stuff. You're going to, you have to like try to reach out in different kinds of ways to make it so you're not just like another piece of paper in their application pile, right? So, I mean, I was kind of lucky that, that, you know, I had a common contact, but I never knew this guy before or anything. So I really cold emailed, and it's honestly something we learned in our one of our college classes uh, that, that's really important to actually do. Like, it's scary. It's hella scary. But the advantages you can get from that are way, way higher than anything else you can do. Because what's, what's the worst thing that can happen when you send a cold email? You either A, don't get a response, or B, they say no, you know, but we appreciate this. Someone in the chat saying, we get cold ball play people wanting our agency to represent them. They instantly go to the trash bin. You're undercutting my point here. You're undercutting my point a little bit, Mr. Chatter. But I will say at the same time, there's no con to the person sending the cold call in that case. I know, I know you're not talking about the same industry necessarily or like the same exact job role that I'm talking about, but there's no con for the person calling other than that rejection, Right? I actually think, no, you're actually feeding into my point. I lied when you said you were contradicting my point. You're literally feeding into my point. (coughs) Excuse me. Just got a little caught in my throat there for a second. The worst thing that can happen to the person that sends in that call is you throw it in the bin and you don't do anything. But the upside someone can get by sending in that cold email is someone says, oh, well, this person actually seems interesting. They have a passion for this. They actually have, you know, applicable skills and stuff. Maybe it's worth learning more about this person and why they're interested in us. And then that can lead to so, so much more down the line. So there's like, it's, if you think of investments, like, you know, risk reward ratio, right? Like you don't want to be taking a negative risk reward ratio, like investment or something, because then you're more likely to lose money than make money, you know, based on your, your skew. The risk reward ratio on cold calling and cold emailing is so, so skewed to the upside because there's virtually no loss, but so much gain to make. I think that's a huge barrier to get past and it's totally anxiety inducing and stuff. But it's absolutely worth kind of biting the bullet on that stuff and getting through it at the end of the day. And I don't know if anyone else that's viewing this live right now has actually sent out cold emails and stuff and, and, and see anything from it. But I'd be interested to hear that in general. The next part that's probably the most important is, you know, outside the hard research skills, a lot of the soft skills, to tell you the truth, about like how you carry yourself in general, like, and I'm actually carrying this more outside of just the, my work environment. You know, I used to only dress in going out at least, you know, inside I'm much more chill, but I used to only dress in sweats and a t-shirt, you know, athletic t-shirt, kind of like what I'm wearing right now. So I'm still dressed like that somewhat, but every time I go to see my boss, I wear, you know, pants that are like actual professional. I wear, you know, dress shoes. I wear polo shirt, stuff like that. Right. 
when I, you know, and when I'm interviewing companies as part of my internship, I'll wear a button-down shirt and everything and actually look professional. And I'm taking that mentality at least outside of my workplace. And in, at college this year, I'm not just going to wear sweats and a t-shirt like I did the first two years, although I'm kind of excused for part of it because of COVID. I'm actually going to be wearing, you know, more regular shirts, you know, polos, button-downs, whatever. I'm going to be wearing nicer pants and stuff in general. Maybe I give myself a bit of a pass in the winter when it's freezing cold. But, like, in general, I'm going to be trying to do that more often because there's so much to actually presenting yourself in life to other people that I totally think it's worth actually taking that lesson and applying it outside at the end of the day. You know, I think it's important when you're in class to your professors. If you're coming in... And thank you to the person that just dropped the fall on the stream. I appreciate it. But if you're going into a class for the first few times and the professor doesn't know you at all, right? And you're just there in your sweatpants and your beat-up t-shirt or whatever. What are they going to think you're doing? They're, they're going to think that you're not paying attention at all or anything. And, and that, like, you know, you're purposely, like, don't care about their class at all, right? And, and you don't want that. You don't want them to think that because it's setting you off on the bad books. Maybe you do care, right? So setting off that impression in a good way... You know, to your professors and stuff, especially when they're, you know, in classes that care about you and are applicable to what you want to do out of college and they have connections and stuff, is very worthwhile at the end of the day. So I'm taking that and I'm applying it. And I think I did talk about this a bit on my podcast too a couple of weeks ago, but getting over the imposter syndrome thing was also big. And to the person that says you're literally one of 350 people in your class, no one cares about what you're wearing, at my school, I'm like one out of 20, right? So there's a lot more of a visible view of me, and I'm usually quite part active participant in my classes so showing that you know i care enough to dress formally for, for the classes and stuff just as they're doing you know, as professors and stuff I, I think there's payoff to that but the the imposter syndrome thing no 20 not 10 to the person that's asking 20 people in classes um and someone else is saying i found i only actually learned from three professors at university most but you want to make sure the ones that are you think you can actually learn from respect you and do and you know you treat them well and show them that you care about what they're teaching so that they can help you in other ways too you know i think that's totally 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 worth that i really do and i know it's you know there's there's all kinds of anxiety and stuff wrapped into all these things at the end of the day but it's totally worth actually discussing this stuff and you know actually taking it to action you know i was talking about the imposter syndrome thing too that's another thing I took away from my internship. That isn't just the, the research process and stuff that I learned. I was able to get a lot better at in the analytics and stuff and the actual modeling and everything and how to take a thesis and write about it as well. It was the, some of these soft skills about imposter syndrome and anxiety and stuff and how to get over these things. I was scared out of my pants, basically, when I had to interview the, the CFO for a company for the first time or the VP of Investor Relations for a company the first time because I was like, Man, these people have worked, you know, for this company or in this industry and stuff for decades. And, you know, I, I've only, you know, spent, you know, a couple of weeks researching these companies, you know, and I'm doing my best. But, like, they're totally going to just think that I'm, like, some worthless person that, you know, is way, way not worth their time or anything like that, et cetera, et cetera. And actually spending the time preparing ahead of time for those interviews, but then also doing them helps you get over that fear. Because at the end of the day, if you show to those people, you know, that CFO, that VP of Investor Relations, that you care about what you're doing and that you put in the work ahead of time and you know about their company and stuff and you're looking for more information where applicable that they can fill the gaps for you, they'll respect you. It doesn't matter your age. I totally had imposter syndrome going, especially because these people are older 
and I'm 20. Someone asked a question about how my boss is. He's like definitely like a lot older than me, right? He's gonna be, uh, I don't actually don't know his his exact age, but he's you know older than me. He's not like old old or anything, obviously, but you know he's probably in his like 50s or something. If he's in his 40s, I'm gonna get fired because I I don't mean to say that in a rude way or anything. I just don't know his actual age, and I was I didn't ask that stuff. So if he sees this, please don't fire me. I'm sorry, man. Um, <laughs> but I feel like there's a lot of fear of the age barrier and stuff like that, but actually just putting in the effort and showing that you're prepared can make such a big difference. You know, about the professor thing, again, someone just said in the chat that professor will go out of their way to help you if you respect and show that you care about what they're teaching in class and out of class. A hundred percent. You are so right about that. And I had, I really did have an excuse with COVID to some extent because I learned only online for a year and a half. So I did have an excuse not really to dress up or care in certain ways and stuff. But going forward, I want to change that to show I, I do care. Because now, this is the positive of grinding over the summer. And my mental health was definitely hit during part of it. And I'm happy I'm past that and doing a lot better. All my gen eds are done. So I only have general business courses, my major and my minor, and electives now left. And, and, the, and you know some of the major courses are, gra are grad school stuff. But these are all things I'm much more engaged in and willingly, you know, other than the general business courses taking but they're business courses so i have i guess a higher than normal level of interest in the first place no offense to my cinema class but i'm never gonna write in about a film from an interpretive criticism lens again you know i i, I didn't have an interest in that class but i'm gonna have some of interest in all these classes going forward and that's gonna have a benefit for me in, in how i'm handling things so as long as you ma maintain a 3.5 gpa or better it'll be fine dude i bombed my first semester hands down I was I had to adjust to actually being at college, and I bombed my first semester. I I got a two three four my first semester. I've done it so much better since, so much better since my GPA this semester or this full year was a three seven four. I did really really good this year at college, and I did good over the summer too. I got two three sevens and a, and a four zero this summer out of the three courses I took. So since the end of my first year of college, my actual GPA is like a. 3.8 almost, right? 3.75 to 3.8. But I'm, I'm, I'm going up. I'm getting better on those things. And obviously, I think when you send in your transcripts for applications and stuff, you know, seeing the improvement on that curve and stuff, especially because I have a, I have a 4.0 in my major as well. So that really kind of pads me a bit, as well as being in the graduate course program, if that makes any sense. The whole learning online thing was a huge loss to many students. Yeah, honestly. I think it was a mix because the... I think it was easier to pass certain things because, you know, they ch professors change their policy on quizzes and exams to be open book most of the time. So that made it, it was a lot less of just cramming and, and uh, you know, just having to be forced to memorize things and more that changed it. How can you apply what we're learning in class? And I took that as a positive. But the, the, it's harder to actually maintain the knowledge you learn when it's when it's online in the same way, if that makes any sense, because you can't, I guess, go out and actively apply it in the same way. And I honestly, I really hope going back to college that these professors don't just go back to these open book, you know, required exams or not open book. They don't go back to closed book. You know, it's just how much can you cram in, in this period of time that they actually go to this open book mindset of, you know, we're teaching you things. I want to see how you can apply these things that we're learning and caring and stuff, but it's not, you know, fully closed book, if you know, and, and you're screwed over, basically. Because I think there's a lot of people, you know, at least with the education part of things, that 
testing, like the SAT and stuff, doesn't really represent things in a great way. And there's a lot of history that shows that and whatnot, and more colleges are dropping SAT requirements and whatnot. But I hope they actually take that, especially after the pandemic, and incorporate that into their act- how they're actually you know, doing education, right? I, re- I really hope that. Uh, obviously, I might get screwed over if they don't, just like so many other people will, because they probably are totally underestimating how difficult it's going to be for students to shift back from open book exams and stuff to closed book and, and having to completely cram the same way rather than learning what they're actually doing. You know, if, if professors just go straight back to that with no reprieval, I think it's going to be way, way harder for students. Why would they? Because maybe they think that's like the actual right way to do things and or that, you know, it's what they're used to or whatever, or it's what they were taught they're supposed to do. Got to be incentive. I don't know. I, I, I don't know like why fully the person asked that you know, asking why they do it, but some might will, you know, whether we like that or not, some will, you know, someone else saying that applying stuff instead of just learning is way better. Absolutely. You know, full, full stop. And that really goes honestly to the internship part of things what I was doing this summer too. I wasn't just, you know, learning these cram things. I was doing things as well. A hundred percent of the way. 100%. And I'll hydrate because someone has redeemed this in the chat. See, this is the cool things about recording the podcast live is people can interact with it outside of just typing messages they can make me hydrate. There's my water sip for them. But like I was saying, I really got to apply things. And this is probably why I think learning at a boutique firm or a smaller firm for internships is such an advantage over learning from the big wigs. I, well, not really big wigs. That's just what I wrote in my notes. It's a lot better than learning from, you know, a giant firm is what I meant. You know, like a huge firm, like, you know, let's say, I don't know, Bank of America or something. Because if you're at a Bank of America for a summer internship, you're going to be probably one of, let's say, 50 interns under like a single person, right? And they're going to tell you that, or they're going to make you have this cookie cutter style of thing. And you're not going to really get to learn how to be an independent and good analyst and stuff like that, which is what I'm learning to do, because you're not learning how to involve your own independent way of thinking and your own independent mindset into what you're doing. And that's one of the most important things that differentiates people within investment research is the part of actually being able to to bring your own independent perspective and do things outside of the box. You know, I saw this tweet earlier this week that, you know, sell sides are conformists and in a, in a way i wouldn't say every single one of them is but you could probably generalize generalize in a hot take in my opinion that sell side is very conformist because it's just about going with the, what the current narrative is for the most part and finding ways to justify it even when it doesn't make sense you know the reason i probably enjoyed buy side so much was that it encouraged me to you know have my own individual thought with these things and bring my own perspective rather than trying to fit another narrative I honestly had this like aha moment with it during my internship because I came into it just thinking, oh, I have to make every stock something that has a narrative to either take a longer short position on it. And I was looking at this company and stuff and there was red fl- like red flags that made it like not really, you know, super attractive for what I was looking at it for. But I was like, eh, you know, we can just not mention those things. I was like, well, that's obviously a terrible idea to actually do, you know, if I... S- yeah, I had this moment where I was like, wait, I don't have to do this. I, I can look into these things and make the decision that, you know, this thing just isn't worth, you know, putting money into or something. That, 
it's okay to pass these things up and not, you know, make a narrative for everything. Yeah, well, okay. Just casually not mention. Yeah, well, something I found out was that a third of this company's money was, like, locked away, like, in another country, and it was harder to access. Like, a third of the cash cash equivalents. And initially, I was just like, eh, that's, that's a big red flag, but, you know, not that big of a deal or anything. And I distinctly remember erasing it from my notes for a second, and then realizing, right when I did that, wait, this makes no sense to actually, like, leave this out and stuff. I don't have to make a narrative to make this into a buy. I can tell the truth. You know, I'm not, like, I'm not getting, I'm not doing my internship and getting this experience and getting paid for this internship to, you know, make a narrative just to, just to fit, like, a desire or something. I'm there to, like, actually do hard work, dive into the details, find if there's catalysts that can make something worth, you know, buying or worth shorting and stuff that, you know, make a show that's below its intrinsic value to buy or above its intrinsic value to short and, and compile it information in a way that's presentable and, and useful to my boss. I wasn't there to make a narrative and stuff. And I think that realization changed my course through the whole summer. Full stop. Because this summer so far, I've completed work on nine companies, right? I've only made a buy or sell recommendation on three of them. So two-thirds of the companies I've actually worked on this summer, I've said that, you know, there's better opportunities for us to gain, you know, better returns compared to, you know, our benchmark and stuff. You know, I think passing up on those things is probably the biggest thing. And it really goes to, I guess, the mentality that I've really adopted over the summer too, for the most part, that I'm going to keep with me going forward. And that is that it's more about avoiding losers than missing a winner. Because just because I noticed red flags and stuff and, and say something like, you know, might be pass up on it, it could still moon right? That company could still moon and I, you know, I, we could miss out on big gains on that, but it's totally better to miss out on one stock going up a lot and just not be in for the ride than to push that narrative that doesn't exist and, and conform and then get into something and then have it lose out and, and, and drop down and then you're stuck and, and you made and you actually made something that cost a lot of money, right? It's totally better stuff like that and i think learning through this process this summer you know outside of just the notes that i have literally on taped on the wall of, of things to do i have this particular one that i wrote myself at the end i have some motivational quotes i have a like a research order but i've definitely been straying from this a little bit because part of what i've been learning how to do as well this summer is to not put like 95 percent of the focus on the financials and stuff put extra emphasis on the services or goods or the products that a company is providing and seeing if they're actually adding value to the like customer. You know, whether it's another company that's a customer or regular consumers that are a customer, or the people using this getting value added to them in, in a real way. And if they are as big and as better than their peers and stuff, that gives, you know, advantages. It, it really does. I, someone's at saying in the chat, you know my computer's notes app, right? I know it does. But I put them on my wall behind me so I can distinctly see them every day when I go sit down at my desk. I have these motivational quotes that I like to see at all the time. I have this particular note that I wrote for myself that says, be contrarian, go out of the box, find what gives pe people value, find hidden 
catalyst, discover price dislocation in all caps. I wrote that down. Being able to see that and realize, you know, I can do my own thing with this in a way, but be intellectually honest and put effort in and go out of the box. Like, I've gone to stores and stuff in real life for this work. I've, I've asked staff members of stores about products and things, you know? And really kind of like dive deep into these things. You know, my, my mom has been, actually been helpful. You know, some of these like products and things, you know, or things that she's used before or, or uses. And I've been able to ask her about these things. And then she gives me actual insight that's pretty useful. That I can actually apply in, in what I'm bringing to the table and work. You know, going out and talking to people in general and, and working on this stuff is huge. And I, I, I'm definitely going to take that away once the summer's on, past and going on. Like, one of the things I'm so excited for this fall back at college is my club that I'm in. I'm starting as a portfolio manager in the communication sector of my club at the investment group at my college. And what I'm really excited for is to bring all these things and bring it back to my sector. Because I, I have a strategy set up now. For how like the whole club can make these like look into stocks and make these presentation things and decide on things, you know, if it's something that has something near, nearby that we can go to, I want us to physically go to locations and scout them out, you know. I want to split things up so there's different people taking notes for, you know, the financials and different people taking notes on the products and stuff like that. And I, I want people to, you know, not be afraid to do bold things. You know, I I think like this summer at least. I, what, one of the companies that I actually that you know worked on and is one of the three that actually you know ended up being a buy or sell or something like that I was like one of the three that I actually recommended wasn't one that I was given like assigned to I was like huh I found this company beforehand and I thought it was interesting then and it's you know you know it, it's at a really interesting valuation right now and I thought it was worth looking into and I brought it up and obviously they, like they've had a you know like controversial history and stuff and, and it turned out that like it worked out or like I found these things that were super cool about it but it's that actual experience of you know actually being bold and taking a risk and you know thinking that this this is something that could actually work out that led to a really good experience you know obviously I can't say the company uh and stuff like that confidentiality things you know it's proprietary information to the person that asked what company it was very clearly I can't say what company it is obviously but I'm just using that as you know, an example to show that it's good to kind of take those leaps of faith in a way, you know, from cold emails to being contrarian when you're doing your work to being individual and spending extra time. I really did notice as the summer progressed, my research process lengthened, right? My first report that I finished, it took like eight hours or something from start to finish. For me to do a full report now, it takes, you know, from the research process to compiling things, 15 to 20 hours of work to get to get done right now. And that's obviously as I go professional and, and keep going and stuff over time, we'll get longer and longer and longer, right? And I was like, I told my bosses, I was like, hey, you know, I noticed as the summer goes on, you know, I, I've been getting more like comprehensive, I guess, with these things. It's been taking more time. And then he said that, like, you know, that's a good thing because it means the quality of information that's going out of it is better, which means that the information is worth more at the end of the day, even if it took more time, you know, and it kind of goes to like, you know, it's, you're, you're spending more time to actually find 
you know, what gives value? What, what, is the, what are the value differentiators? You know, and it's good on, you know, making sure that you're validating the things that you have so you don't accidentally get stuck in a loser and stuff like that. Because it's obviously, like I said, more important to, you know, uh, not get stuck in a loser than it is to miss a winner and stuff like that. So I've just been super thankful for the experience this summer, honestly. And I, you know, I obviously can't thank my boss enough for, you know, just reading my cold email and then, you know, talking with me, giving me a project and then taking me under his wing this summer. You know, I know, I know you're having a good time dragging me through the, the Long Island Sound, you know, as I desperately tried and failed at water skiing properly, but I'm so grateful to him for the opportunity he gave me this summer. So, so thankful because I was able to learn so much and I hope I was able to give him you know, value himself and give him some return on the investment that he put into the time that he put into me, you know, at the end of the day. It was a lot of hard work. It definitely wasn't easy work or anything like that, but I'm so happy for that opportunity. Shout out those bosses that take you under the water. I didn't go underwater, fortunately, because I had a life vest, you know, you're staying, you're staying safe, but I didn't know how to water ski when we started. Uh, and this is back from the, the intro of the podcast. And I totally, when they when they start pulling the boat, when you're water skiing, you're supposed to like lean back and stuff and have your arms flakes in it. I totally pulled and tried to stand up straight and just got like yanked forward and like like my feet were pulled out of the water skis and I fell face first into the ocean. I'm like, man, maybe, maybe I did this wrong, you know? I was like, wait, maybe I gotta lean back instead and actually listen to what they said, you know? And the second time, I did kind of a similar thing, but by the third time, I actually was able to sit back. And then by the fourth time, I was actually going, and then I, I fell out of the wake. And the moment I fell out of the wake, you know, I, I went down and up a little bit as I hit a wave, and I totally just, like, ate seawater in the face, like, so hardcore. But it was so much fun, you know? Someone's saying they think the China company has news. I, I'm going to Google this, because I don't have this show notes, but I read it on a Bloomberg article earlier. China Bank loses $15 billion. I forget which bank it was. It was... Uh, I forget the name of the company. But there was, it was... It's one of those high-yield and, like, risky debt... Oh, yes, it was... Um, I found it right here. It was... I, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm, I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation, but uh, Hurong, or Huarong, uh, posted a $15.9 billion loss. And I'm going to... Type this in and, and see if we can get the app. It's right here. Just insane. They posted a $24.5 million first half profit after the annual loss, but the, the the loss this company made last year was monumental and can't be understated. Hands down. Because they did some really risky things and stuff like that. There's this great video by Bloomberg Quick Take about the company last month. And they, you know, obviously this company had delayed it's required reporting of its annual financial reporting by like up to six months. And they're supposed to report by like next week or something. And they, they released that today. They lost $16 billion last year. And they are currently short of regulatory requirements on their actual financial strength. I'll, I'll pull up the article here for the people that are live that can see this. They're, they're short of their actual like requirements. They had a net loss of $15.9 billion. Their impairments on assets were another $16.7 billion. And they're below actual requirements right now. So this is not good for the company at all. Obviously, they're still solvent. 
but they're below actual required liquidity things. They essentially got a bailout to stay going because uh, China's state, the state government owns a, a lot of the company through various like state-owned like uh, like you know operations and stuff. But this kind of shows the I think this more broadly shows the risk with the the China macro market now because the bad debt market in China has been getting increasingly increasingly uncertain over the past few weeks. And if I like literally right now look up Evergrande Evergrande stock, even though some of the China stocks listed in the US had some sort of rebound, you know, going into the past week or so, Alibaba's getting most of their gains back. And if you look right here, it's not like Evergrande is doing hot at all. You see this? We, we go to the one month time frame. This does not look like a company that's doing too hot right now with their $300 billion in liabilities. Yeah, the bailout was only half of the debt. Yeah. They, they, so they still have a lot of debt yet, uh, the Huron company. But, you know, either way, this shows the risk of, of things when they start to spiral a little bit, honestly. And I haven't talked about this for a little, a little bit, but thank you for reminding me about the Huron thing, the person in chat that said that. Because it's a pretty big story about a company that got reckless and they're playing in a risky market, and then they started to have things turn sideways on them, and, and they got kind of obliterated. Someone else is saying, so China stock's going to crash global economy? I wouldn't necessarily say that. There, there have been some interesting things on Twitter that I've seen recently about, like, kind of like the Jaws thing about, like, you know, China stocks underperforming, and then, you know, U.S. stocks struggling and stuff like that. What I would still be very much more broadly concerned about are economic things with China. The, I think, still personally... The biggest risk to the U.S. stock market, the U.S. economy, and this is just my opinion, is not inflation or, you know, economic crash in the United States and stuff like that, like caused on its own idiosyncratically. I still think the biggest risk macro right now to the U.S. and to the world is a sudden and unexpected slowdown in China's economy. And there's, there's already signs that I'm a bit concerned about, personally at least, on that side of things. You know, we saw who wrong things last year. We saw Evergrande right now, which is still very, very concerning. Evergrande's bonds are terrible still. They got some lift last week, but, the, you know, the, the, the bonds are still, I think, trading under 50 cents on the dollar. The stock is is pricing in collapse, basically, it looks like. Basically, if you're taking it, like, you're looking at it from a just a quantitative stance. You know, let's say the company turns out it's going to be fine. Obviously, the stock would balloon up, but it's so suppressed that it's like there's some level of probability of solvency, like priced into the current stock right, like price for Evergrande right now. I and I really and there's also other things outside of just the, the stock stuff too. The crackdown that's gone on in the tech sector is still huge for them. Obviously, it's been impacting sentiment of China stocks a lot, but I think there's more to the actual drawdown in China stocks than just that. China's manufacturing PMI for, I think it was July's, came in below expectations to a pretty substantial amount and was barely above actually contracting. Like, it was growth at a very slow amount, almost declining in growth. Like, or not declining growth, but, like, actually contracting year over year. So stuff like that, I, I think, poses some of the tailwinds. We talked about this, I think, in one of the first podcasts, about China's relative overexposure to the housing market and stuff, so you know they're for economic growth and stuff. If you think the housing bubble in the U.S. is insane, 
and you think it's a bubble, I personally don't think it's a bubble. I think there's a severe undersupply of, you know, you know, starters, um, single family homes and stuff like that in the U.S., which are causing some of these supply demand things. I think in the U.S., for example, it's a supply demand function uh, for the shortage of homes. That, and that stems back from how home builders and stuff were, you know, reacted after the 2008 pandemic. You could make a pretty good argument. What's going on in China is actually a bubble for, for the real estate market. And stuff. There's so many property developers and things that are just building ghost towns up and stuff. And their things aren't materializing and they're taking loss in these. This is a problem for Evergrande and stuff, for example. And if I don't, if I'm saying this incorrectly, totally feel free to correct me. You know, Discord, call me out on Twitter or anything if I'm wrong about this. But I'm pretty sure I saw a statistic a while ago, less than a year ago, that a majority of home sales in China were to second and third home buyers. So someone that already had a home and they're buying their second or third home. Obviously, there's problems with that kind of market, especially when they have so many ghost towns, right? In China, there's this really famous story of town, I think, uh, in Inner Mongolia, the province, and they thought it was going to be, you know, a really big industrial, you know, area because they found, like, mineral deposits and stuff there. And they built up this huge city that they thought was going to end up housing a million people and stuff. 100,000 people live there today. And it's a city built for a million people. I mean, that's just part of the problem alongside other things. So... For them, at least, obviously, if China all of a sudden sees an unexpected slowdown in economic growth and maybe even recession, obviously, it's very speculative to say anything like that. But that's a major headwind that could could pose an eventual risk. You know, people say, oh, well, the Fed tapering is going to kill the stock market and stuff. And obviously, I'm not talking about a lot, a lot about tapering this week. I think everyone else has really talked about it, and I guess this is a sufficient way. But my, I guess if I were to give a little ticket, people know they were going to taper eventually. And... The, econ- the underlying economy in the U.S. is pretty healthy right now. There's a lot less jobs in the U.S. right now than there were before the pandemic. But productivity is up very substantially and will continue to gain. And more jobs will turn. But there's also an increased amount of people that retire, too. So you're not going to probably necessarily get to the same level of jobs before the pandemic because there might not be that as many people in the workforce as before the pandemic. Right? So there's other things to keep, to keep in mind with that stuff. But the underlying economy in the U.S. is, is pretty strong right now which is a fortunate thing it's a very very fortunate thing and i think you know people overreacting with the fed is mostly the perma bear people i see some people on my twitter and i purposely keep these perma bears followed because it's kind of like, i guess like a nice gut check and a way to kind of like stay in touch about these things but there are some like people that have been like saying oh this is like the end and like everything's ridiculous and stuff obviously we're not going to get 20 percent a year every year in the, in the market. That, that's stupid. Obviously, this is going to stop to this degree. But at the same time, there's, there's a level of understanding that within the current stock prices that the pandemic caused changes that exploded earnings in, in companies because they could have taken these relatively minor adjustments in terms of, you know, changing from a lot of retailer stuff, changing from a push model of just pushing excess inventory out to try to force sales at lower margins to a pull model where they produce based on consumer demand and can achieve much higher margins of profitability. Stuff like that balloon profitability for so many companies in a way that just never was happening before the pandemic because no one real or people just weren't taking those simple steps. And now they did, and there's big profitability because of that. The same level of supernatural growth for profitability won't continue, but it's not like everything's just blown out of proportion here, right? I, I think the one thing that's a little, I guess, unnerving, you can make the arguments unnerving, is that literally every single dip is bought instantly. And there's there's no, I guess, 
real pricing in of, you know, any downside in a way. You know, if something happens that kind of blows sectors out of the water, like the Delta variant and stuff, which could actually have pretty material impact on certain parts of the, you know, Q3 right now, obviously. But, you know, the stock market is just like, woo, you know? To, to be fair, I think small cats have priced things in a lot better in, in this regard because they've, you know, been just in this range for like half a year almost. You know, they, they've probably been pricing it in a little bit better, showing I guess, some of the reactions a bit better to these news and stuff. Someone's saying in the chat about the China thing that we talked about that they think, <clears throat> sorry, that China still has real estate problems since 2014 or before. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good argument. That's kind of goes going into it. When does China report manufacturing again? Let me check here and uh, see the economic calendar thing. I'm just using investing.com to pull this stuff up, so give me a moment. It might not be perfect. I have to like filter this thing and like deselect all these countries and stuff to pull this up for you. So give me just a moment. I'm I'm just going as quick as I can. You know, just all someone's else saying just all in hut easy life. I know hut mining and a lot of those Bitcoin miners stocks have done pretty well, you know, in general over the past couple of weeks as, as NFTs and stuff have surged back. But maybe there's there's other things to, to keep in mind uh, other than just that. I definitely think there's more to uh, the, the world than just uh, the cryptocurrency mining things. Let's see. Is this it? Trying to find this. The next China PMI... Uh, is oh it's oh it's it's literally less than twenty four hours from now oh crap sorry this is actually kind of interesting the next manufacturing PMI for China is nine p.m. tomorrow so from the time of recording this podcast it's literally in twenty three hours from now the previous was fifty point four versus fifty one point three expectation so barely and keep in mind anything below fifty is like shrinking in size fifties break even above fifties growth. The forecast right now is 50.2. So it's expected right now, at least, that there'll be a continued deceleration on top of the worst expected deceleration in that growth uh, year over year for manufacturing PMI in the month of August. So keep an eye on that because this comes in below 50, then I think that would validate some, some other concerns personally. Obviously, that's just an opinion on some things. And people could obviously take a very different approach. But that's just my take. Someone's saying uh, JKS has been doing pretty good for China after cliffing. Uh, is that Jinko Solar? I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Because what there was some new, news thing about, a, I think, a ban on certain solar panel imports recently. I, I didn't read the full story and stuff, but I think I saw it as a headline. So I think people were talking about, like, if that happened, that first solar would be doing really good. On that news, so interesting to keep that in mind. There, someone's saying spy puts on Tuesday because of China manufacturing. No, I wouldn't just go on and say that, right? I I think honestly, this is I was actually talking about this with a family member earlier today. It's a really good thing that so many people have like started saving and investing because it's such a good thing for the long term. But the gamification of investing is extremely dangerous because it has people thinking way too short term. Instead of thinking decades out there thinking, well, oh, yeah, it's, it's got to be the next week. And it's making people treat it like a game. So the increased use of options stuff, I love to use options personally because I love to collect theta. That's that's why I've made this theta talk, you know. I love to use strategies that can give me outsized returns by collecting premium. But 
so many people, especially young people, I think, that are a bit more like predisposed to the, the, the gamification stuff because, you know, they're, you know, I guess they're younger and stuff and have been exposed to these things the same way. See the gamification of the stock market and think, oh, this is like guaranteed profit. I'm going to make profit on these. And they'll put money in that if they were thinking rationally, they wouldn't put in because they wouldn't be comfortable losing that money. But because they, it's gamified to them by the way it's marketed and they think that they can't lose money or anything, they'll put in money that they're not okay if they actually lose it, but they just won't think that it's possible to lose the money. And then when it actually kind of hits the fan and goes against them, very upset at that point in time. And that that's not, not a good thing, honestly. You know, I know we all joke in our Discord communities and stuff about, you know, we got to get the YOLO and stuff. But at the end of the day, really actually doing that stuff is dangerous. Because 99% of day traders won't beat the market. But those day traders and studies and stuff aren't using risky derivatives that have a risk of 100% loss on their investments. You know, they're using stocks that could crash and stuff, but they can sell some money at the end of the day. Options are a whole different ballgame in how scary that stuff can be. Someone's saying in the chat that options are the call of duty of stocks? Pretty much. In a way, yeah. You could really get get that argument for it, and it makes sense, to tell you the truth. Like, I personally love options because they're a way to be smart. You know, but that means you have to detach yourself, and I've literally pushed myself away from my chair to kind of show the detachment. You have to detach from, you know, subjectivity. You have to look at some of these things quantitatively. What I like to do is use the quantitative side of options, the statistical favorability of being theta positive, to get outsized returns or better entry points on things that I've done fundamental research on and think that they're very undervalued, right? For example, I am a massive, massive fan personally of Build-A-Bear Workshop. That's just my opinion. I think their stock is amazing. And with, with their guidance race and stuff and everything, I think, you know, the 2022 price target is, you know, way above their current stock price, right? That's just my opinion. After all the research I've done, I've put a good amount of time to researching that, you know, and that, that was the conclusion I came to, right? So what do I use options for in that case? I don't go and buy monthly calls right before their earnings, you know, that, or, that expire in like two weeks. I don't even buy leaps or anything, right? I sold puts, which meant that if I got assigned... My cost basis right now, for example, if I get assigned, is $13 and I think 85 cents or something like that. It's $13.85 or $13.65. It's one of the two. I forget. And that's like 25% below the current stock price. Or it's 20 to 25% below the current stock price or something like that. So I have a pretty big buffer between where the stock is my break even right now, right? But I also think that the stock is worth a lot more than its current price. So by using options, I have less exposure because I'm not directly owning the shares, but I have the opportunity to get exposure at a lower price to something I like a lot, right? That at the same time, I'm able to quickly lower my cost basis down too. My, my cost basis initially was, you know, is it, it's $17.50 right here, right? That's like, you know, the, the, the strike. But I've collected enough premium to make my actual cost basis $13.85 or $13.65 in less than a month, in about a month or so, right? Maybe a bit more than that, actually. It might be like 
up to a month and a couple weeks at most. But it's like less than a month and a half at most. But that's huge to be able to do that. Obviously, I, I have an advantage with this particular stock that the IV is particularly high, you know, especially compared to historical volatility. And I'm able to collect extra premium stuff because they had earnings coming up and I was able to take advantage of that, you know. And, and the stock's been like volatile, you know, relatively volatile, but, you know, they had a huge run in, in April, May, and that helped out a lot with keeping volatility up, which means it's more profitable to collect data and stuff. But having the opportunity to use that to get a cheaper position if I get assigned on a stock I really want, and if I don't get assigned, I've still made a good amount of money, is something I can't pass up on, right? Or, or stuff like that personally, right? And I, that's about any stock in particular where you have those opportunities. That's why I like options, because I can use them not just to hedge, which I love to use them to hedge, obviously, on positions that I have, and kind of collect like a mini dividend or whatever, but I love to use them in those smart ways to take advantage uh, of what you can do by being theta positive and collect value, you know, by time passing. When people are speculating and gamifying these things, that's when it gets scary. And especially with options. You know, I think, you know, the whole Wall Street bet surge, because of all these gamma squeezes and stuff, it's cool. It's cool that they, they've made gamma squeezes, like, I guess, a known term, basically. But there's so many people that are getting burnt on these things, and it's, it's sad in a way. And I really hope that if there's anything that comes out of this, like, you know, going forward in textbooks and stuff, or just general education for the market, is that people are better aware of the risks that go with using these instruments. You know, derivatives are risky. You're, despite, you know, being able to use them as a hedging tool, they're inherently, you know, leveraged instruments. And that, that realization is not, I guess, applied by enough people, unfortunately. I, I hope they are going forward, because it is important to, I guess, realize that. Someone's saying that you need to solve the gambler's problem to make uh, those thy of play to make them investment. I don't, I, I don't get what that means. Well, I think you're saying solve for the gambler's problem to make them play investment. At the end of the day, it's up to the individual. But, you know, I really hope that people are getting increasingly educated about these things at the end of the day. Especially younger people, because there's such an advantage to starting to save young if you, like, literally save $81 a month starting at the time you turn 20 and get 15% a year compounding, you can have, I think, at least $250,000 or more within, like, 40 years. 81 a month, right? Obviously, 15% is hugely outperforming the market, but you get my point in that starting young means you can compound in such a crazy way. You know, let's. I think it was, like, I forget if I had the graph saved. I was looking at it when I was at... Uh, or waiting at the clock at Grand Central, so I might not have the actual thing saved anymore. I'll take a look through my feed really quick. I don't, and I'm kind of salty I didn't save this because it's such a good, such a good actual thing. But I definitely keep that in mind in general about the advantages of starting early too. And I hope you know because I'm a younger person that I can kind of impact younger demographics in that way too. You know that. Starting young, even if you can't save a lot, can mean so much more down the line. Always, always remember that, if that makes any sense. Someone in the chat saying that they'll take Zoom weekly puts through earnings for you. That's the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. The exact opposite of what we were just preaching. Sir, I have no idea how you heard what I was just saying for the past like 10-15 minutes and decided, you know what? I'm not going to be responsible and think long term and do things that benefit me long-term. I'm going to YOLO on earnings with derivatives. 
Someone else has said Lambo or... I, you, I understand you're all joking and you're not actually going to, you know, waste your money like that. But unfortunately, that's the mindset of too many young people that have, like, been gamified by it, you know? They'll think that, oh, well, you know, it's that big of a deal. You know, Lambo or, you know, uh, Ice Sandwich, right? Basically. And they'll think that, you know, it's not that bad, not that big of a deal. If you put, like, $1,000 down, you're, like, 20, and you're in college, and you don't really have a full-time job or anything and you're, you're still learning and in college and stuff and you lose that full thousand dollars if you were to gain 10 percent a year with dividends invested for 40 years that ten that thousand dollars in 40 years would be fifty four thousand dollars about you could send yourself alone to another country to an all-inclusive resort for half a year if you didn't blow that thousand dollars on an options play today right just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind at the end of the day. That's going to wrap it up here for this episode of Theta Talk. Uh, thank you so much to everyone for listening. I really do appreciate it to everyone listening on Spotify. Um, everyone listening here live on the Twitch audience. Thank you so much. You're doing a lot for me. The schedule is going to be a little bit different heading forward here. I might have one regular recording left next Sunday, but I am moving to my college on September 6th, and I'm definitely going to have a different streaming schedule at that point in time because my streaming schedule will be based on when my roommate is working at his place, not in the dorm on campus, and I'll have to be streaming at those times, which obviously means my upload schedule for the podcast will be different. So I'll basically try to have that all set up for you and keep you all informed on what the new streaming and, and recording and uploading schedule will be, but it definitely won't be at Mondays at 9 a.m. anymore. Uh, unless my roommate decides to work from like 7 p.m. to 12 a.m. on a Sunday night, which I really, for his sake, hope he doesn't. Uh, but we'll still be doing this. I hope to still do this at least once a week, the Theta Talk podcast. I hope to be doing regular live streams at least a little bit too. So if you want to be, if you're watching this on Spotify or Apple Podcast or whatever, and you want to be a part of the live audience and put your own, you know, answers in about what you're thinking about things or ask questions, stuff that I can answer live, it's twitch.tv slash Come and show up. I'd love to have you here. If you're watching this in, in the Twitch chat, I'm going to totally go and get my podcast really quick. To sh oh, wait. I don't need to do that. I can type exclamation point podcast. There you go. Go click that link. Follow the podcast. It helps me out a lot. And thank you so much, everyone. I really hope this has been helpful for some of you all. And I hope you have a great evening. Or, well, morning. This is uploaded in the morning. I don't know why it's evening. It's evening right now. We're recording, I guess. I've been rambling. Take care. <laughs>